This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute, episode number 46. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Corey Martin, a safety professional and founder and CEO of Spotlight Safety. And Corey is joining us today from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Corey, I'm so excited to talk with you. I've been reading some of the things that you've been uh, sharing socially, especially on LinkedIn, and I know we're going to get into that. Um, but before we get there, I'm I'm really curious to hear, I know you're a scientist, but I'm curious to hear how that all happened and how did a scientist become a safety professional? Yeah, so like a lot of your other guests, I'm a true accidental safety pro. Mm -hmm. If you had asked me, 10 or 15 years ago, what I would be doing as a profession, safety would not even be on the list, let alone at the top of the list. <laughs> uh, I was a scientist. I studied biology and immunology uh, throughout school. I was, you know, like most scientists going the doctor route. Um, mm -hmm. And then about halfway through undergrad, I switched to focusing on being a professor. And I thought mm. that, you know, being a professor at the liberal arts of institution would be a good match for my skill set mm -hmm. and you know so I went to grad school continued to study immunology and you know about halfway through grad school I was in a position where I had a couple of medical um, you know challenges that required me to take a medical leave mm -hmm. and you know also helped me reassess if being a professor was really what I wanted to do. So I started yeah. looking at the the job scene and, you know, what types of positions were available. And it seemed like every time a job was posted, there were numerous really well-qualified PhD students with multiple postdocs and, you know, other yeah. great qualifications all going for the same positions. And, yeah. you know, so I was like, okay, do I really want to do multiple postdocs? I wasn't in love with the work mm -hmm. at the bench in terms mm -hmm. of the repetition and the mm -hmm. lack of variety that comes with a lot of the scientific research today. Mm -hmm. And so I had a really candid conversation with a former professor of mine uh, at undergrad and mm -hmm. you know, just started to evaluate if that was really the career path for me. I, I'm a teacher at heart, um, mm -hmm. so I was kind of looking at other options. Yeah, like what else could be teaching? Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I found this position. It was going to be a temporary thing. I wasn't even really considering it as a long-term thing, but I became the research safety officer at Dartmouth College which mm -hmm. seemed to match, you know, my research background. I knew my way around the labs really well. Mm -hmm. And and that, that role... wasn't that wasn't your university either. You came out of was it is it Yale? Yeah, so I was a mm -hmm. graduate student at Yale, um, mm -hmm. studying immunology. Ended mm -hmm. up leaving with my master's after finding this position and really liking it. So yeah, my again, I was going to take one semester off, maybe two, just to get my bearings, um, and then return and and finish my PhD. Yeah, um, but. I ended up really loving the safety profession and hmm. completely unexpectedly. And my role there was as the, you know, ultimate generalist. So okay. I, you know, was the assistant everything, I like to call it. Yeah. So I helped the biosafety officer, I helped the chemical hygiene officer, the radiation safety officer. I did some things with laser safety, occupational, you know, health and safety. I was mm -hmm. one of the hazardous waste coordinators. So 
That sounds yeah. very typical of a lot of uh, people in university settings, at least those that I've spoken with. It's like, oh, and then it was this, and then it was this, and then it was that. Because there there really is a large scope of safety in, in, in that setting on a campus. Oh, yeah. On the campus, you know, I was part of the emergency planning group. It really just kind yeah. of extended everywhere, which was mm-hmm. great for me from a safety perspective because, you know, it was really a two-year crash course into everything you could do with safety. Right. Um, you know, it wasn't anything in huge depth, but, you know, just getting those tendrils out and kind of soaking up as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really changed my perspective of what safety was. So, you know, when you're at the bench or you're in academia, it's really, you know, safety cop. You know, EHS shows up once a year to do an inspection. You pass right. or you don't pass. Um, you know, they do your training every year, but there's not really a lot of interaction with them. Mm-hmm. And you view them as the safety cop and kind of the person who's going to get you in trouble if there's anything to get in trouble about. Yep. And then I found myself in that role and, you know, I was like, okay, I was doing the inspections. I was interacting with grad students, but I was also the same age as all the grad students. And Dartmouth is kind of in an isolated spot for a population. So I was in all of those social networks, but also Mm. the safety cop for those students And it was Mm -hmm. really fun for me to kind of navigate that because, you know, I would go into their labs for a social visit Mm -hmm. and, you know, it just changed my view of how to help them. And also, I think, changed their perspective of, okay, this person's not just looking to catch me in a gotcha moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think both sides really benefited from that. And it's something that I've kind of applied to my current role and other elements of safety and just being that relationship builder and start with the communication element before you get into any changes or findings in anything right. that I do. Yeah. So you were using your, your social capital uh, wisely. At yeah. That trying to, you know, having people be your peers and, and, and leveraging it and leveraging it for good, it, you know, backing up to a term that you used in case people who are listening aren't familiar of uh, work at the bench. Yes. Uh, I, I know what that means, but for people who don't have that background, um, can you describe what that means for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think there's this really romanticized view of what scientific research is and yeah. you get the, the snapshots, but I think a lot of times, you know, a five-year PhD research program, you'll get positive data on maybe 20 of those days. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the other time that you spend is optimizing protocols and just basically repeating the same experiment over and over and over while you mm-hmm. tweak the variables to get what you're looking for mm-hmm. or, you know, just to kind of prove the process. So a lot of times it's, a lot of monotonous work. I was working with cell culture. So, you know, growing cells in the um, biosafety cabinet and mm-hmm. just making sure that they were healthy and ready for my experiments. My particular cell line was very slow growing. So it would take, mm-hmm. you know, three weeks to do a particular experiment. Mm-hmm. And it's really just pipetting things back and forth. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, just, just yeah. moving liquids around. Yeah. For many hours at a time, trying to get yeah. as many flasks and you know dishes ready as I could. Um, and yeah, so yeah, so when when Corey says the bench, it's like whatever whatever you imagine as listeners of what a laboratory looks like with 
you know, taller workbenches and biological safety cabinets, like you mentioned, you're, you're doing that work in that environment. So it's the work at the literal bench. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, not the most glamorous of day-to-day jobs, but. Um, Super important though. Oh yeah. But very interesting. Yeah. And, and the yeah. intellectual side of it was very, very rewarding for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened, what happened next? You said you moved on to something else. What happened next? Yeah. So. I was kind of in the state of as all of my social friends were graduating from their safety program or their safety programs and getting their PhDs, they would Mm -hmm. go off and go to other places and, you know, leave the Hanover area. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of looking for what was next as well. Mm -hmm. And because of the challenges of doing safety in academia, I kind of wanted to get a different flavor of safety. Yeah. So, you know, I basically wanted to try consulting and you know I didn't really know if that was what I wanted to do long term sure but I was looking for a, a way to get into the industry side that wasn't okay I'm going to be a safety manager at x company I yep. still wanted the variety mm-hmm. and consulting seemed to fit that so I joined a company based in the Boston Cambridge area and leveraged my lab safety background into helping biotechs and pharmaceutical companies set up their programs mm-hmm. and you know worked with many many uh, pharmaceutical companies over the course of the next two and a half three years or so yeah and you know i think that's probably the most rewarding process of my life kind of getting into the you know how to help advance science without actually doing the bench work <laughs> and yeah, right. enabling that interaction to happen. Cause a lot of times they're under big time crunches and want to get the production side of the, the development going, especially on mm-hmm. the drug development side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you were working for like a consulting company. Yeah. So is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So uh, it was um, a company of about 50 okay. um, with 30 wow. or so consultants and working directly with, biotech groups and pharmaceutical companies so a lot of startup companies but Mm -hmm. even to large-scale established companies for gap analyses and Mm -hmm. maybe other side projects that they kind of needed even if they had established ehs programs yeah and so that allowed you that that window or that door to see lots of different types absolutely yeah and which is what you were interested in so Mm -hmm. for me it's is all about the variety of work environments so mm-hmm. you can only do bench work for so long before you want to yeah. or you start valuing the the variety element so the idea of getting into you know two or three different groups a day was yeah. nice and and helping so you know at any given time i would have between 15 and 20 um groups that i was working with wow, and that's a lot. you know it just gives yeah. you a lot of different projects and problems to solve Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it was completely different than anything I had done you know previously so it was was really engaging yeah and you get to meet all these different personality types that you're running into while you're doing that that's that's one of the reasons that I loved um enforcement work with OSHA Hmm. because it got me in the door of over 500 workplaces right where I got to observe and see the ways that humans work and the ways that they interact. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, definitely a great education to be able to have that opportunity. Yeah. So, so 
is that still where you're at, Corey? Did you move on to something else? Yeah. So Spotlight Safety is a consulting group. Um, okay. I still am involved in the, the biotech pharmaceutical community and academic um, laboratories as well. So yeah. I would say that lab safety is really my, my specialty. Um, in Chattanooga, the biotech scene isn't quite as strong as the Boston-Cambridge area. I don't think m- many places regionally will ever um, really rival the, the Boston-Cambridge area. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of looking for other related markets to, to get into as well. So a subset of my business is called Brew Safer, and it provides EHS services and workplace safety consulting to breweries and distilleries. So Interesting. There are a lot of them popping up. I think a lot mm-hmm. of yes, there are groups are former hobbyists or garage brewers, and maybe the workplace safety side of things isn't really on their radar when they're initially scaling up and commercializing. Mm-hmm. And one of the unique things about the brewery setting is it's very analogous to large-scale biotech because it's still just vats of yeast. So mm-hmm. you know you're <laughs> making sure. beer instead of producing you know vectors or vaccines or whatever you're really doing Uh and so a lot of the EHS components overlap and it's also a relatively complex industry environment in terms of all the moving parts and high pressure high temperature yeah right exactly talk maybe maybe give a few examples of some of the hazards that you're helping people to mitigate around for well I mean we probably, many of us listening know people who are doing, you know, have a, have a, have a startup brewery, maybe are doing it in their garage or their home or their, you know, basement, or maybe they have a successful um, first business started. What are some of those things that you're noticing? Sure. Yeah. So when you're, you know, working at the five gallon carboy scale of, of brewery uh, production, it's not always, you know, apparent what the, the top hazards are, but certainly once you get up to, the multiple barrel uh, vats and tanks and, you know, fermentation and moving these liquids around, you can start seeing really the complexity of it. So, you know, you start getting into things like lockout tag out for, you know, high voltage um, equipment. Mm -hmm. You start seeing permit confined spaces because, you know, you can't, you can't fit in a five gallon carboy, but you can certainly fit into a, you know, large fermentation tank and you need to get in there to clean. So a lot of the groups that I'm, you know, talking to have, you know, gaps in their policies in terms of maybe they didn't do a full PPE assessment. Maybe they Mm -hmm. don't have a permit confined space policy. Um, Most of those groups, even if they do have a permit confined space policy, are just relying on local first responders to be Mm -hmm. their rescuers. In case something, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. Which, you know, may present problems if someone's actually in distress within the tank. Um, I always point out the fact that it's very difficult for coworkers to stand aside if they see a, you know, friend or colleague in distress. So they usually act (laughs) in those cases Mm -hmm. rather than wait the 10, 15 minutes or whatever it takes for the first responders to get there. So Mm -hmm. um, those are the kinds of, you know, higher level things I, I try to help them with. Obviously, you know, once they get into forklift safety and, you know, Working from heights, ladder safety is one that breweries tend to overlook in terms of, you know, yeah. working at height and, you know, there are always wet environments in, in yep, breweries generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. there are just a lot of factors and considerations yeah. that, that go into it. 
Yeah, interesting. So have you been able to make inroads with that industry, like through a, an alliance or organization that, that many of them are part of? Or how did that work? Yeah, so it's been a lot of networking. Um, my strategy has been a combination of direct marketing and also partnering with some of the related uh, industries. So I've talked to a lot of insurance companies that are providing oh, sure. workers comp and other support Property. for these, yeah, sure. yeah, mm-hmm. so for these groups, um, because we kind of have mutually beneficial goals. <laughs> you right. know, we don't want to have incidents. Um, so that's been one of my strategies. And also there are a lot of brewers associations and alliances out there for, you know, there are guilds in, in most of the states and those types of things. So right. formulating those types of conversations to just yeah. promote safety as a need in a lot of these cases and identifying groups that may need some help in filling gaps and may not mm-hmm. have the resources to dedicate mm-hmm. a full-time employee to learning mm-hmm. and implementing those things. Yeah. Well, this makes this makes complete sense. And, you know, kudos to you for identifying a a, a risk area, uh, you know, safety is for everyone, you know, something that we always say, we, you know, wherever a human being works, safety applies somewhere to various degrees. And, and you found yet another market that might not necessarily um, be tapped right now. Yeah. yeah so Corey, um, I know um, one of the things that's, you know, challenging for all safety professionals when we're trying to, you know, get the attention of people to want to make change for safety is, you know, like how, how would, how do we measure it? Um, what does, how do we know what success looks like and what are those hard numbers or, um, ROIs or KPIs that can be applied to, to safety? And I'm curious to hear your take on that because you are a scientist. So this is, this is how your brain works. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm very drawn to numbers and figures and Mm -hmm. the underlying components that go into those. Yeah. So yeah, this is definitely something that's, you know, been an interest for me and something that I like to partake in on, especially LinkedIn. There are some nice little debates going on right now about mm-hmm. the, the benefits of leading versus lagging indicators and what the best safety metrics are. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's, it's interesting because the most popular safety metric right now seems to be in- incident rate. Mm-hmm. And from a kind of process standpoint, kind of looking at the worst case scenario and mm-hmm. going back from that is can be informative. Like you certainly should learn from incidents and incident reporting to me is one of the most important things to make sure that it's robust and you're getting a hundred percent of incidents, um, you know, going through the safety program and you're, you're learning from those follow-up uh, processes. Yep. Mm-hmm. But incident rate is also pretty misleading and manipulatable <laughs> from a mm-hmm. worker standpoint. So Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, so if, you know, as someone who was working at the bench and mm-hmm. didn't really understand the concept of, you know, robust safety culture and making sure that we're learning from all safety incidents, mm-hmm. it would be very easy to have a chemical spill or minor incident in the lab and then not report that. Mm-hmm. Right? So yep. If yep, you're like, only oops, using, clean that up. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could just get the spill kit and clean it up and, you know, wash your hands and be you know, done. Think that you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that, obviously, is that you're under reporting your incident rate. And if, yeah. you're met, if your only metric is incident rate, it 
encourages employees to underreport in order to get a better incident rate. Because mm-hmm. the only direct way that those employees can influence the rate that you're using as a metric is by not reporting incidents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, it's certainly something that I've seen upper managers really rely on mostly. I think there's split consensus from the safety professional standpoint as to how good uh, incident rates are at benchmarking programs. But it's certainly something that the upper managers tend to be drawn to as a quick and easy way to get a sense Mm -hmm. of, are they near the industry average? Are they over the industry average? Are they under it? Um, But it's not really a destination. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think, you know, as safety professionals, we can do a better job of informing our management systems as to what those measurables are. What should they be looking at? And, And sure, incident rates and experience modification rates... Um, you know, the, the, the OSHA log reporting metrics, those are kind of the old reliable standards Mm -hmm. that, um, even if you don't know that much about safety as a management person, everybody seems to know those. They're sort of like the comfortable old shoe, (laughs) right? And, and what you're saying is we could do better as a profession to, to, to highlight other, other metrics, yeah. So yeah, talk more about what the what you see those being. Yeah. So you know, I think there's this big push for leading indicators, and I think it's definitely a good direction to go in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it all depends on the strategy that you end up using. So I've seen a push recently in some groups to use near misses, and mm-hmm. you know, inspections and and that kind of thing. But they're only mm-hmm. looking at numbers again. <laughs> they're not looking mm-hmm. at the actual utility of what they're getting out of those. So they're mm-hmm. not promoting the follow-up process in most cases they're just kind of putting a quota on near misses and then saying okay if we get this number of near misses reported then we're doing well Mm -hmm. except that kind of turns safety into busy work for employees on the ground and Mm -hmm. from a culture perspective once you put things into the busy work category you get a lot of you know lessening morale around Mm -hmm. it so you know they Mm -hmm. may be more involved from a they have to do this standpoint, but they're not actually looking at it from a, you know, how do we mitigate hazards? They're looking at it as a, I need to hit my quota. (laughs) Yeah. And And so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I was, you know, it, it really just changes the priority on their part from a, can we identify hazards and mitigate them? And, you know, in some cases they might even, you know, move something, right? It, you know, you kind of have to go to the worst case scenario. Are they creating some minor near misses just to hit their quota and mm-hmm. save time, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of benefits to going toward leading indicators, but it depends on how you implement them. Right. And so if you were going to record, you know, the near misses, let's say, and 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 you're saying that you know there's a next step to that for for follow up and digging into it what might that look like in practice yeah so for me once you go to the near miss category first of all you have to make it as easy as possible for employees to report the near miss initially mm-hmm. so you know a lot of People will, you know, think that implementing this really complex form, you know, gets all the information up front, but it right. also puts a burden on the employee. Mm-hmm. So for me, it would, you know, a text message to the safety person is, 
you know, driving that near miss, right? You identified the hazard. You, you have somebody else in the loop on it and mm-hmm. it's quick. It, it may not work for every program depending on the size and scope and all that kind of stuff, but just quickly getting it out there and then having the safety professional follow up on that. I think the follow up without anything after it or the initial reporting without anything after it doesn't really drive culture, right? It sure. just says, okay, I'm doing this to hit this quota or, you know, I'm doing this because I was told that it's important, but then nobody really cared about it. Right. So, and when that happens, you're just reinforcing that safety doesn't really matter. Right. And that is actually worse than just not having the near miss drive in the first place. Sure. Sure. And yeah. So, yeah. So following up with people and saying, okay, so this happened, tell me more about that. And then, um, you know, like what, what can we learn here? What are, what are, um, what are things that we can put in place? Does anything need to be put in place? And, you know, hopefully the result isn't someone checking some sort of box that says, you know, human error. Right. (laughs) Right. And if you get positive, you know, feedback from that, or you see somebody actually take you seriously and, you know, follow through on it, you're much more likely in the future to engage in that communication again. Yeah, right, right. So, Corey, you've mentioned um, culture a number of times as we've been talking so far. I'm interested to get your take on on um, what you think safety culture is and how might someone go about measuring that if we're going to do, as long as we're talking about measurements. Yeah, sure. So, for me, the most important thing in safety culture in any safety program is communication. And Without that information sharing element, you're not really going to be able to identify all of the hazards present. And so, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about you need to get in the field or on the ground and really interact with your at-risk employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, it also is important to communicate that to the people who have the financial resources and the ability to make those policy changes. Mm -hmm. So when I view safety culture and really the role of the ideal role of a safety professional, it's not so much the policy development. It's really just facilitating that communication through all levels of the organization. Mm -hmm. And Hmm. I think one of the best leading indicators with that in mind is a safety culture assessment And I think it's a really underutilized tool in most industries because I think it's one of the best ways to get a full scope of feedback and also have it be very targeted to your own operations. So there are lots of safety culture assessments out there and you know, giant 200 question surveys sure. and organizations you can hire to do that. What, what in your view is an effective way or tool um, to use? Because I'm, I'm not necessarily sold on these sure. 200 question surveys myself. So I'm curious to hear your take. Yeah, no, there are definitely good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. Um, mm-hmm. If you make it into busy work or, you know, it takes a long time to get through, it's not going to be nearly as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's very targeted. You have specific outcomes that you're looking for. And mm-hmm. if you pair them with actionable items, so let's use the example of near misses. If you are wondering if your near miss reporting is effective and people are able to engage it well, one of the mm-hmm. questions could be, you know, do you think that near miss reporting is easy to accomplish or do you understand the process 
four near misses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that can give you a very quick assessment as to how your actual employees are viewing this process. And if they, you know, say, no, it's too difficult, well, then you can, you know, make it easier. Um, One of the things that I like to do for these assessments is to not ask, you know, do you feel comfortable or do you know? Because I feel like most people will overestimate their own ability (laughs) to Mm. complete tasks or their own knowledge. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to get an accurate accurate assessment if you do that. So I like to ask things along the lines of, I'm confident that coworkers are trained and prepared to help me in an emergency. Mm-hmm. Or I'm confident that if I raised an issue with one of my pieces of equipment, that it would be taken care of quickly. Mm-hmm. Or if I saw a coworker or a supervisor operating in an unsafe manner, I would feel comfortable speaking up and I know that my company would support me in doing so. And those questions really change the focus from what people are doing themselves to what the overall culture is. That makes so much sense, Corey, because when you ask those questions about do you this, do you that, it's almost like a quiz, right? Right. And people don't want to fail. And so they don't want to say like, well, I don't know, because that seems like a failure question, right? Right. And so if you put the onus on them looking at the organization themselves through their lens, I I see how that changes the dynamic. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't have Hmm. to be a long quiz (laughs) or assessment. You know, you can get a pretty good sense of the overall safety culture and communication from, you know, 10 to 20 questions. Yeah. And there are so many free tools out there now with, you know, surveys and you don't need a, a large group or certainly a third-party vendor to to make this happen you can as long as you're you know approaching each question and pairing it with a tangible action item that you want to take out of that Mm -hmm. um, you can be very effective with this and and not a lot of time Mm -hmm. yeah and so when you do something like that and you have the results in your hand and you're the safety professional what what should people be doing next? Like, what do you? What would be your recommendation? What to do with with results? Yeah, so I'm a big proponent of safety committees. So mm-hmm. for me, next step would be you know to simultaneously report those results to the safety committee, and okay. also kind of pick out two or three highlights to bring to the upper management group. Okay, and you know, hopefully, your safety committee is involving all levels of the the organization. Um, you know, you should have some at risk employees there, you know, at the entry level positions, you should also have somebody from higher up who can Mm -hmm. make some financial decisions and put in place any of the policies or, you know, be advocates for the policies that you're, you're Mm -hmm. discussing. So, you know, it shouldn't just fall on the safety professional to, to be driving those. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the next step for me is really, you know, which one of, of the questions that didn't score quite as well which ones will influence the most change in a positive manner the Mm -hmm. quickest so i think one of the challenges for safety professionals is change is hard yeah and sometimes you fall into a trap of trying to do too much change too quickly 
mm-hmm. rather than kind of prioritizing the low hanging fruit and saying, okay, what can I start building momentum with and getting baby steps toward mm-hmm. the goal that I want? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and, and you're recommending that be done at the safety committee level and, and start with, you know, triaging the results of a, of an assessment from there and moving. Yeah. So as a safety professional, my general stance is to not be the unilateral decision maker. Yeah. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. the more you can share in even just hazard identification, but also mitigation and controls, uh, Mm -hmm. the more other people will take ownership of Mm -hmm. the program as well and not just constantly look to you for answers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes safety pros will just be the only source of guidance or decision making and it really creates an us versus them kind of mentality whereas if you involve more people from the organization it's more of group think kind of thing and you'll get much more you know appropriate information and more actionable data because you're involving people who are actually performing those operations and you know able to see kind of gaps that you may not have you know, anticipated based on the yeah. initial risk assessment. Yeah, more ideas, more ideas too. You know, I, I want to mention to our audience, for anyone listening, when, when Corey, you brought up safety committees, if people are thinking, hmm, I, I don't have one here, how might I get that started? Or do you have to have a safety committee? Um, I would encourage everyone to check with um, the state where they live to see if there is a law in place that that requires safety committees for workplaces. There are some states um, when it comes to just OSHA compliance. If you're if you're operating a business in a in a state-run OSHA area, there are some state laws that require um, employers to have safety committees. And so you might want to check into that just from a compliance piece, or if you need a little leverage to get one started, Absolutely. and you have that law, that might be good for you to check into. Yeah, it's also worth noting that some states are employee number driven so you may have started your company without the requirement in place but once you hit a certain number of employees it may trigger the need for a safety committee yeah good good point good point yeah and some of them are very specific about um, what the makeup of the committee needs to be in terms of um, equal numbers of labor and management as well yep yeah. Yeah. So, um, Corey, I think you've been talking, it seems like about, you know, how to start molding that safety cu- um, culture in a company. And so, you know, for someone who's, who's thinking maybe this is something I could get started and maybe I want to start with one of these assessments, like you're talking about, um, you know, what would you recommend people kind of start with to try to build that leadership support. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you hear a lot of people talking about the importance of top down safety culture and it has to come from the top. And, you know, that's certainly true. Um, Mm -hmm. If you don't have buy-in from everyone in the company, I think it's, it's difficult to start to enact the kind of safety culture changes that, that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly company leadership is really important. Um, The way that that actually looks is going to vary from organization to organization. Um, You know, a large organization that has a CEO that's not visible at any of the, you know, sites or facilities may not be the best form of company leadership. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, a 20 employee group 
that may be the, the right way to address it. Um, but you really need to have somebody in a position of authority advocating for the safety program. Um, it can be small to start. You could have them, you know, first of all, attend the safety trainings is a good start, um, mm-hmm. you know, alongside all of the other employees. I think that's a good look. Um, but, you know, I've had I've had some groups have success by sending out memos or updates or little safety newsletters that are coming from not just the safety team, but also from other uh, company officials and, mm-hmm. you know, making some safety statements as well. So if, if, at the beginning of that training, if you have a you know supervisor or other company official there, you know, make a quick note about, you know, the commitment to safety. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything formal. Um, But the more consistently you have those engagement opportunities, the better. Mm -hmm. Because it really all comes down to communication and inclusion and getting buy-in throughout throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe identifying who is that internal leader who has more of for lack of a better term, more face time with employees, mm-hmm. the person that's visible might be a place to start versus maybe starting at the top top, particularly if that person is invisible to people in their day-to-day jobs. Yeah, even if it's just a you know really well-seasoned employee on the ground, you know if that's the person that everyone looks to, engaging yeah. and building that relationship with that individual, you know they might be your most resistant to change employee, which makes it even better because then you can kind of use them as a resource to learn why uh-huh. <laughs> they're, uh-huh. they're having uh, difficulty or changing or why, you know, they've always done it this way, which I think is a yeah. pretty common response. But, um, you know, the more you can do to build those relationships, the, the more success you'll have in kind of molding the culture. Yeah, right. So let's let's say you wanted maybe for our safety professionals who are listening, if they if they do want to start at the top of their organization and really working to try to inform their leadership as to what this whole safety thing even is, because, you know, I believe there are still many leaders that safety seems like a foreign language. Yep. You know, like, what is it? How do we define it? How do we measure it? Um, I think it's that thing where people have to wear PPE or that sounds like, you know, the cop role or whatever. How, how do you go about demystifying this whole safety, um, thing? And, and I think you might have a resource to share that you might want to talk about with that. Yeah. So I will take that segue and run with Uh it. Um, so I recently wrote a pseudo white paper, uh, called the safety climb and, My motivation for doing so uh, was really in the fact that with my clients um, and the the fact that I've worked with, you know, several organizations at this point, one of the key problems that a lot of safety professionals have is communicating the need of safety beyond regulatory compliance. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think organizations get tripped up on is... They view regulatory compliance as the end of the safety journey <laughs> mm-hmm. and or they, you know, view that KPI. So if they get to below 2% incident rate, you know, they're at the industry average. So now we can stop. Right. right we're done. You know, okay. we mm-hmm. can, you know, focus on other things. We don't have to, you know, put quite as many resources into the safety program as long as we maintain that. Yeah. And I think as most safety professionals have viewed, that's not the end of the journey and you still have a large gap between compliance and safety and an even 
you know, larger gap in some cases between safety and proactivity and mm -hmm. that true safety culture that's fully, um, you know, engaging in the communication element. You're looking at policies or things that are coming up in advance. You're really taking the time to, at each level of the organization, discuss it and, and contribute. And, um, you know, you've really reached that that peak. So the safety climb is built on this theoretical hike <laughs> up a mountain. Okay. And okay. it outlines different milestones and, you know, kind of walks people through the process of, okay, now you've achieved awareness. You know all of your liabilities. Now how do you fill mm -hmm. those gaps? And you've achieved compliance. What do you do next? And gives you a more step-by-step -step approach rather than relying on one key metric or um, mm -hmm. you know, other things. It kind of broadens the, the scope. And I also wrote it in a way that doesn't use a lot of technical language with the idea mm -hmm. of this could be a document that a safety professional could hand to upper management and use as an icebreaker to start that communication process. Right, right. And how many remind uh how many milestones are on the climb? There are five milestones. So Okay. Milestone one is basically this is the starting point. You know, we mm -hmm. don't have a safety program yet. And milestone two is the awareness piece. So we've mm -hmm. done all of our due diligence. We're now aware of all of the elements of the safety program that we need to implement. Mm -hmm. Milestone three is compliance. So kind of the, the pseudo peak, the we think we're done, but we're not quite done yet uh -huh, portion. Uh -huh. Four is safety. And then five is proactivity and forward thinking. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, within each of those milestones, there's a paragraph on the transition points, how to get from one milestone to the next, some of the tripping points that that a lot of groups face uh, and really how to pitch those those transition points and the importance of of moving toward the goal of productivity rather than the goal of compliance mm -hmm. to your management system. Yeah, I, I've I've read your I've read your paper, The Safety Climb, and I have to say I just I loved it and I loved the visual and we'll sh we'll share it in the show notes. So uh, right. for anyone who's listening, um, you'll be able to you'll be able to see and read what Corey's talking about right here. But just for the visual aspect of it, you know, you can you can picture a, a climb like like Corey's talking about, like a climb up a, a up a mountain is what it looks like, mm -hmm. and you've got all these sort of flags, these milestones that Corey's talking about. And when you reach that, we're compliant, like we've checked all the boxes for compliance. It's it shows a little tiny plateau, yep. like oh, this is like a comfortable place. We could just kind of stand and hang out here forever. Might even pitch a tent, um, <laughs> but but you're not at the top yet. And, and so it's just, it's really beautiful. And what I loved about the visual aspect of it is if, if I were using it to present to a, um, a leadership team, I would, you know, I would describe these milestones in, you know, little short, as short as I could vignettes and ask, ask people, where do you think we are? Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see and assess then, oh, we're like at the bottom or no, we're halfway up or oh, oh, we're here, you know, so that you can really take them on a journey as to what you're trying to get to. And I just, I think it's just beautiful, Corey. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the motivation for using the mountain theme was yeah. because, you know, as a business leader, I don't think many want to be at the milestone two or three stage 
and stay yeah. there. I think mm-hmm. there's a kind of ego <laughs> element of it where we want to uh-huh. be at the top of the mountain. And, uh-huh. you know, if, you, if you're only looking at a number or a metric or, you know, compliance as the key, it's really easy to achieve what you're looking for without, you know, really striving for the we're proactive and we're safe. So mm-hmm. you can get stuck in these lower levels of the climb without actually making it to the top. And, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to use the mountain was that there's always more you can do to continue your climb and reassess your safety culture and, and build it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and we are competitive as a society, Absolutely. right? And so to be able to use that kind of visual is, is, um, very useful. It's, it's not necessarily different than the competitive nature of an incident rate, right? right? I mean, people are wanting to aspire to be this or that, and you're taking this, you know, to a different point. Um, I, I have, I've done similar things with like training technology and inviting safety professionals and their leadership teams into like, how are you doing training now? What sort of 21st century practices are you using um, to to get training across to make knowledge, make sure knowledge transfer is happening and then actually ask people to plot themselves on, are you over here in this century with a VHS tape, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yep. or, or where are you? And, you know, people will do that and they'll like be, oh man, like we're, yeah, we're in this century, right. <laughs> you know, but we're doing these other things in our industry in this century. You know, how do we, how do we bring these things together? And, um, and yeah, so I think these visuals are just, are so powerful. And I love the, I love the climb idea because it's not necessarily that you'll always stay at the top, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can definitely yeah. fall, fall back down if you're not, you know, proactive about it and maintaining the program to the level mm-hmm. that you should be. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of times, and I see this a lot in consulting, you can have a very well-established safety program on paper <laughs> and then, yep. you know, you, so you start off really well. Um, but then, you know, maybe the, the former professional leaves or, you know, you get a lot of turnover and things start getting neglected and, you know, you might have areas open up as gaps that you weren't expecting because you just weren't maintaining the, the program appropriately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can see this visual, Corey, being used um, in a wider aspect within a company to even show employees like, here's where we're at. You know, like we asked you to do this assessment mm-hmm. and th- these are some of the things we've learned. And we're also gathering this and we think we're right here at this milestone. But we want you to know that the next one we're working on is here and this is what it's going to take. Yep. You know, whether that's motivation within your safety committee um, and or within departments that everybody knows like we're on this journey together and here's the goal this is where we're moving yeah 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 I really love that thank you love it yeah so um Corey what what do you what else do you love about this profession what are some of the uh what are some of the your favorite your favorite things or uh, accomplishments that you like to talk about sure so I mean I am very pro relationship building and the soft skills side of it. So I always like to take on the challenges that maybe other people are avoiding. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, every organization that I've interacted with has one person who's kind of the, okay, safety 
I understand it, but I don't really want to participate in it yeah. trait. And, you know, some of that comes from previous experiences with safety or, you know, in some cases, and this, is, this comes up a lot in, in the lab environment, they are doing something now that is not even in the same league of hazard that they were trained in or have formerly worked in. So mm. their view of safety in that context is kind of nonchalant, maybe a little cavalier. And yeah. it comes across as, you know, arrogance and maybe hardheadedness. But until you actually communicate with them and build that relationship with them, you don't understand truly where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a good example of this is I was working with a group and they had really, you know, high risk chemistry, at least from what I was experiencing. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, being someone who was on the outside looking in, I viewed it as, you know, pretty high risk. You know, certainly there was a personal safety element there that people just weren't taking seriously. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until after I had a really good conversation with that particular chemist that I understood why, you know, the view was the way it was. And mm-hmm. it was really because the way he was trained was in an insanely hazardous environment where, you know, they were constantly faced with life or death situations. And, wow. you know, it wasn't in the U.S., so there weren't nearly the, the safety standards and practices involved mm-hmm. where he was trained. Mm-hmm. So that just completely put it in perspective with me, what, you know, to me, why he was having a hard time viewing the hazards that I was saying were really high as being really high. Right. So because he was like, yeah, this is nothing yeah, exactly. compared like, to what I've seen. Like, okay. You know, so mm-hmm. there's this element of, you know, if you overstate the hazard in their context, they may not take you seriously. So mm-hmm. what I was pitching as a particular high hazard mm-hmm. situation, he couldn't, interpret that in the same way and until I realized that it was difficult to communicate with him because you know there were things that he was doing on a day-to-day basis that you know weren't safe and yeah your understanding of risk was two different exactly so I was Mm -hmm. and and I was doing too much to overstate the risk in his mind um, because of his past experiences and that was a really eye-opening thing for me because now anytime I, you know, have those conversations, I always start with, you know, what's your experience? And, mm. you know, if you start and you show them, you know, they could have 35 years experience doing something. And, you know, obviously that gives them a lot more intimate knowledge with their overall process than mm-hmm. what you have as a safety professional. Even if you've done your research and you're, you know, really committed to, understanding what they're going through um, they're always going to know more than you right so if you project yourself as the expert and you know everything and they need to kind of comply with the way you're teaching them to do things it misses a really valuable opportunity to learn from them and Mm -hmm. help them understand where you're coming from yeah so what did you do in that case did you were you able to come to an agreement yeah so it took a lot took a long time but Mm -hmm. Um, over the course of, you know, many interactions and actually talking about things that weren't safety related. So one of the things that I like to do is if I'm having a lot of conversations that aren't being productive, I'll start coming up with other ways to interact with them that aren't, you know, problematic. 
Sure, so, sure. Yeah. You know, we, aren't controversial right. or, or yeah. So mm-hmm. we started talking about things that were completely unrelated to the workplace environment, you know, what you know you did on the weekends, really showing those types of interactions, which allowed me to be in proximity to the work without overseeing it. So mm. we could have informal conversations where, mm. you know, I could see, you know, if there were any progress, you know, if there's any progress being made, but not actively feel or not have him actively feel like there were any things that I was doing to really check in on him or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. because we had those interactions, it got to the point where we started having this mutual respect and I was learning from him. Uh, He was starting to take some of the things that I was saying seriously. And Mm -hmm. we got to the point where toward the end of it, you know, he was helping me with things like chemical inventory reduction, which if you haven't done academic research or Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. safety may seem like a small thing, but uh, sometimes getting them to throw away a 20 year old bottle of something that's reactive is actually difficult. Oh yes. And Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's a hoarder in a different, in a different, uh, different realm. (laughs) So, you know, once I started getting some of those small wins with, you know, them coming to me with, you know, I think we can get rid of this or I think we can do this a little bit differently. What do you think? That's really when you start breaking through yeah. and, and getting progress. Yeah. So you really worked on building trust. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that being in the proximity of the works, you could still be using your eyes to assess things, but you weren't there for that specific purpose. Yeah. You were working on building trust. Yeah. I've really changed the language that I use with at-risk employees quite a bit. So yeah, I feel like say more about that. Yeah. So once you say you're going to perform a risk assessment or you're going to do a job safety analysis, all the flags go yeah. up and you mm-hmm. don't get a true sense of what they're doing. Yeah. So, you know, I like having conversations about completely unrelated things, you know, obviously not to the point of distraction or anything, but anything that allows you to be around the work without raising those flags and, causing people to tense up and maybe not do things the way they would normally do it just because you're there. You know, I think a lot of that was learned in the academic setting where, you know, Oh, the safety professionals coming around, like let's evacuate the lab and let them do their inspection (laughs) with nobody here because then we can't get any violations. Um, Right. Which isn't productive, right? That, that doesn't help anybody. So, you know, really formulating those relationships and being present and approachable and familiar I think are really important mm-hmm. elements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. You want to re you want to reduce that that pressure that sometimes is even performance pressure, mm. right? You know, um, I think about when um, for anyone who follows some of my work, you may know that I I get in front of a camera sort of often in industries to shoot something called supervisor safety tips where I'm going into work environments um, with their permission, of course, invited in to be able to um, film and teach uh, one like hazard recognition skill at a time in these small vignettes. And so come in with a camera crew and we're filming employees work sometimes and um, I've I've learned that I've needed to have conversations with people like this is because it brings us performance pressure. So whether it's you as a safety professional or somebody with a camera or somebody with a different colored hard hat who's coming in with, a, you know, an eye of maybe authority yep. or judgmentship, people work differently. 
And, you know, I've seen that with the camera too, where it's like the safety professional I'm with might be like, what is my employee doing? They're working so fast or they change their posture or what's going on here, you know? And, and that's, that's what you're talking about. You know, if you, if you come in, uh, without that trust, but with what people perceive as an eye of judgment, you're not going to get a true picture. Right. Yeah. My goal is to make my presence comfortable, not anxiety inducing. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a, that's a skill and a craft for all of us to work on. Yeah. Yeah, Some of it's de-escalation sort of in a different, in a different realm, I guess. Yeah. 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 I dealt with that a lot when I was, when I carried a badge and, uh, you know, really trying to figure out quickly how to make people stop panicking. The second they see that badge, I'd see people's necks start to flush, you know, instant intimidation started to change. Yeah. Right. And so, really work hard at how can I, how can I make this feel as comfortable as possible right. in the, in this moment so people can stop and breathe and be real and, and not, not artificial. Yeah. Wonderful. So Corey, um, one thing I want to make sure I share with our audience and it's, it's sort of a selfish plug, I think on my part, because I've really fallen in love with, with something else that you have going on. I'm, I love podcasts yep. and, uh, uh, Corey, you and your wife have started a podcast called So I Married a Scientist. Yes. And I have to say, I just love it. Thank you. And maybe maybe it's the big nerd in me, but <laughs> or maybe I just insulted you. I'm no, sorry. No, no. <laughs> I, I will wear the nerd badge very honorably. <laughs> so their podcast is, you know, I'm, I'm, I might not articulate this um, appropriately, but in my view, um, your wife, who's not a scientist, Correct. is asking you, the scientist, all kinds of questions about a particular topic right. of science. And you're explaining in a way that um, people who um, might not have a sciencey mind can understand it. But then as soon as you go a little too high-minded, um, your wife <laughs> takes it back down and goes, now what did that mean again? Right. And goes through it. And so I've been having so much fun listening uh, and learning from you uh, both, it's just been, it's been really fun to listen to. Yeah. So we're having a ton of fun with that, that podcast. And it really derived from a lot of conversations we have on a daily basis. So it was just mm-hmm. something that, you know, we had a 20 hour drive to New England from uh, Tennessee, where I'm from originally. And we were just talking about random things and, you know, why are the trees changing color and all these things. And we really just learned that we liked having those conversations. And, you know, I mentioned that I have a kind of teacher's mindset and wanted to be a professor. Yeah. So it's a really, you know, cool way to, you know, be involved in the the science literacy element and mm-hmm. maybe give back a little bit of, you yeah. know, I think one of the problems with the scientific community is that we're a little isolated and don't really mm-hmm. communicate the advances or the actual underlying data very well. And, or that science can be cool and it really right. is informative and changes the way we do things. And, you know, I think everyone starts with a lot of curiosity and affinity for science. But then once it gets to higher level classes, maybe if they don't have an immediate affinity for it, it's not something that they want to pursue. And then it just becomes something that's there, but they're not really interested in. So mm-hmm. and that's something that I've learned a lot from from Melody because she asks these questions. and I'm like, that's a really good question, you know. And we're able to mm-hmm. carry out these conversations that are both really fun, uh, but also pretty informative. So, 
Yeah. And, and practical as well. You know, you're talking about things that are practical, whether, you know, I listened to an episode you did on uh, influenza vaccine, something you did on GMOs and something about buoyancy. And I was listening, doing my dishes one night to the buoyancy one and my 17 year old walks in the kitchen. He goes, mom, why are you trying to learn about buoyancy? I'm like, because it's interesting, you know? And so it's gotten, it's gotten my attention. It's gotten my child's attention. I shared it with a friend of mine yesterday who said, oh, I'm going to play this in the car for my two college age kids when we're driving to a Christmas thing. She's like, this is going to be great. We're going to be learning and and talking about science. And of course, safety is one of the sciences too. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious. I'm curious when and if safety ever bleeds into any of your podcast episodes. I'll be listening for that course yeah. to see if it just sort of spills over, sure. <laughs> since it's part of the safety practice. So uh, it's called "So I Married a Scientist." Shameless plug for Corey. Yeah, I appreciate and it. It's just because you know what? Uh, love science. Uh, safety is one of those STEM initiatives too. And why not? Why not share some interesting information and teach us all? So, Corey, going forward, um, yeah, what's next for you? What do you see? What do you see happening, and what are you going to keep working on? Yeah, so I really, you know, want to keep building upon this the safety climb uh, kind of process and uh, yeah. message, and kind of shifting the overall focus of the the industry away from maybe metrics that again can be manipulated and maybe not getting the full story and mm-hmm. really just helping safety professionals, you know, expand their approach to working with upper management and kind of engaging those, those changes that they're hopeful to engage and yeah. maybe giving them more tools to use to, to enact that change. I think one of the things that people fall into trouble with is again just making too big a changes too quickly before they've really laid the foundation of that relationship and trust Mm -hmm. and you know the the more I can do to to help move that narrative the better Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. wonderful and you know what I love about um about the safety climb and what you've put together is that it's it's transferable to any kind of industry Mm -hmm. environment you know, whether it's, whether it's um, academia or construction or a factory or healthcare, I really see it transferable to all uh, workplace settings. And so I, I really appreciate that. I'm going to definitely keep following your work, Corey, and uh, keep moving forward. I think you have a lot to share, a lot to share with this, with us as safety professionals. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this podcast episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. And if you're not subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any podcast player that you'd like. You can also find all of our episodes at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more safety professionals like you and I. And if you have a suggestion for a guest, including if it's you, you can go ahead and contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. Until next time, thanks for listening.